Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, even if they don't. Today is May the 8th, 2015. This is 1571. That's right, episode 1571 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It is time for your calls to the Think Line. 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. One more time, all numbers. 866-658-4465. You can call in and ask me a question or give me a comment. You might hear it on the air next Friday. Or the preferred method now for the listener uh, feedback to the expert council member for these shows is for you to send me an email for the council member of your choice. You'll hear from not all, but many of them today. Uh, give me an idea for a question for them, and I then have them record an answer to that question. I ask it on the air. It just works better that way. Uh, we got an incredible, incredible response from the show last week with seven expert council calls. I think today I have six or seven for you lined up again. Really great stuff, and we will have uh, all of that and more in just a moment after we take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Western Botanicals. Um, I'm sore as crap, honestly, from uh, three days of tromping around miles and miles of field with uh, Mark Shepard's team out in Alcoa. And uh, what I didn't do this morning, and I'm probably going to pause the recording after I get done with the uh, the, the intro segment, is go out and uh, take a few of uh, the turmerics from Western Botanicals. It's my go-to for aches and pains. And there's a lot of other really great stuff I use uh, from Western Botanicals. Their essential oils are great, especially their peppermint oil. Uh, they're just a great company, and if I need help, I call them, and real people that really care about me answer the phone and do what they can to help me, and they'll do the same for you. They're a long-term sponsor. They give away their premium membership to our MSB members. That's a $50 annual product they give you for free, effectively paying for your first year of my membership brigade if you want to uh, join that and support my show. That's just one benefit of that one, by the way. But the big thing here is if it's herbal and it's legal and it's available in the United States, it's available at Western Botanicals. There's nothing you won't find there from raw herbs to herbal preparations to the ingredients you need to make your own. They even have beeswax if you need some of that, just to give you an idea, menthol crystals for uh, deep heat rubs and things like that. You can get all of that stuff. Their, their hope is to create an herbalist in every home in America. Uh, to learn more, go to westernbotanicals.com. Remember to get your free discount membership for 25% off all things if you're an MSB member. Next up today... Herbs of a different kind, harvesteating.com. I've got uh, Chef Keith will be answering an expert counsel question for us today. He's got a great website over there at Harvest Eating. Great ingredients, great stuff. Uh, I'm trying some of his teas right now. Maybe what I need to do is stop drinking this coffee. I seem a little hoarse and go make a cup of this chamomile tea. That was pretty good stuff he sent me along with my last order. Um, he's got a great podcast, he's got a great YouTube channel, he's got great recipes, and he really wants to help you learn to make cooking a life skill, and he's a prepper himself. Learn more at HarvestEating.com. Remember, he does a discount for members of the Support Brigade as well. On that note, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Uh, we've been running a program to win people back who have had their membership canceled due to billing issues with PayPal or just have expired and not renewed. I'm going to continue that. Um, the way that you get the details on this discount, if your account is currently expired, Email me, jack at the survival podcast dot com. 
put TSP return in the subject line. Give me your username so I can verify you actually have an account that is expired. This is a win back for people that have been members in the past. It's a stupid, crazy discount. I'm going to do it for one more week. So if you heard about it before, didn't get around to it, or you just had I had another rash of uh, PayPal renewals cancel on me. So um, that I don't think the people canceled. I just think they changed the payment method or something like that. So I'm going to extend that for one more week, and that will go away for a long time. The discount's stupid. That's the way I'm going to describe it. When you see it, you'll understand that it's stupid. So if you have an expired account, get with me, TSP return in the subject line, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, the email address, everybody else to join. Because, uh, you know, you might get a renewal disc deal like this in the future or something, or you just might want a great product at a great price. Go to the Survival Podcast, click, click on Members for more information. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps active due to your prior service, send me an email, service discount, TSPC, in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one sentence, and I'll give you a discount code uh, for uh, for your service to thank you for your service at home or abroad. All right. <clears throat> with that, I want to talk about the year that was the episode really quick here. This is another one of these years with, like, wow, there's so much I want to read. I want to read the whole thing, and I can't because these are long shows, especially on Fridays. Silver production quadruples as miners go mad. If you want to read about that on TSPWiki.com, you can. You can learn how silver uh, flipped the tide of things uh, in in Europe with the Ottoman advancement. And you can also learn how people were willing to pretty much kill themselves by mixing mercury together with silver and copper to extract silver from silver ore. Um, Western Europe lives or dies today, October the 7th, 1571. Major battle between the Christian coalition, the Ottoman Turks, and um, you can read how that worked out, but you might be able to surmise the basics of it. I'm going to read the Royal Exchange Opens, Alcohol Served Regularly. The first English stock exchange is opened by Queen Elizabeth I at the behest of Sir Thomas Gresham. Think about that name, Gresham. Okay. The deal is the government buys the land and he builds the buildings for the exchange, As it turns out, Sir Gresham is making so much money renting out the upper story, it's a pretty good deal for him. The Queen also grants a license to sell alcohol on promise, premises. Stockbrokers are discouraged from visiting the new stock exchange. Apparently, they are simply too rude for words. They will conduct their business in local coffee houses and such. Sir Gresham will establish banks that make recognizable loans. All of this will make England the financial capital of the European world in short order. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. Sir Thomas Gresham is best remembered for Gresham's Law, which is bad money drives out the good. As with many such laws, the man never said it. He did encourage the Queen to restore an integrity of money supply because whenever government debased the coinage, the coins were more gold or silver and then suddenly went overseas and were hidden in cans under the bed until people could get full value for their money. My take by Jack Spirico. You're actually seeing the construction of the primary methodology of oligarchy that's used even to this day. Little side note is the license to sell alcohol. So basically, um, at this time, pretty much everybody made their own alcohol, but you still might have went to the ale house or the cider house or something like that, but you had to have a license to sell it so that the government got their piece of the action, and they decided who was allowed and who wasn't allowed. That's a little tiny piece of oligarchy that we see even on today. And in some towns, if you want to open up a bar or a restaurant, it's really expensive to get a liquor license. In some places, they've capped the liquor license, and the only way to get one is to buy one from somebody who already has one, which is a gilding controlling entry into the market. 
That's being done in so many industries right now and holding back and stifling so much innovation. It's unbelievable. And that's, you see that right here in 1571. But the stock exchange construction is very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. So the government funds the construction of the exchange. The guy that builds the building gets to lease out access to the exchange. And the common trader is excluded from the exchange. Welcome to Wall Street. Welcome to Wall Street. It's the upper echelon traders that have what's called a seat at the exchange and the upper level, uber level financial institutions that can commit high frequency uh, trading based on their distance from the exchange. Brokers are all remote now, other locations, handling the commoners' money. The brokers make a little, the elite make a lot. And they all do it at the expense of the so-called investor who is just a pawn on the game of chess. Here you see the exact emulation of the system of division that's still in place that utilizes the money of people to the betterment of those that own the industry. That's what this is. Wolf of Wall Street. How about Wolf of the Royal Exchange? Sir Thomas Gresham. Someone that maybe we remember with more... More, more beneficial remembrance than, than we should. Maybe we shouldn't view him so highly just because of Gresham's Law. My take by Jack Spierko. Anyway, with that, <clears throat> let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. I have a lot of great stuff for you. I want to start out with a question for me, and uh, I'll come back and give you an answer to that one. Hi, Jack. Uh, duck versus chicken question here. Uh, when we had chickens, one of the really nice benefits was that our tick population seemed to be greatly in decline. Uh, I guess the chickens were doing a very good job of eating all those ticks. Uh, have you noticed your ducks doing a similar thing? Do the ducks go after ticks? I have small children, so having less ticks is always a uh, positive, especially with all the diseases they carry. This falls under the uh, category of I don't know, I'm not sure, And I don't know and I'm not sure that chickens really do that much to control ticks either. And the reason I say that is I know plenty of people with uh, tick issues who have added things like guinea hens to their chicken flocks to control ticks. And if the chickens were doing a good enough job on their own, they probably wouldn't feel the need to add guineas. And I, I recently spoke to Mark Shepard about this, and he said... You know, they had tick issues in Wisconsin big time, and they have a lot more concern about Lyme disease in Wisconsin than we do in the South or even in Pennsylvania. Um, and, in fact, what he said is if you get bit by a tick in Wisconsin, you go to the doctor because the risk of Lyme disease is so high that you need to be treated just because you were bit by a tick, which if I had done that every time I'd ever had a tick bite me, I'd spend more of my life, I think, at the doctors than, than I didn't, especially when I lived in Arkansas where we had a lot of ticks. So... Um, he told me the following. Basically, they had the guineas. It didn't seem like it was doing much about the ticks. And then it was two, three seasons in where they really started to plummet. Okay, and so I think about that in this question. And then I think about the fact that I have nothing to base it on because since I've been keeping ducks, there's no ticks really in large numbers here. In, in Arkansas, you know, you'd at least find one on the dog every once in a while or what have you. Uh, I'm not saying there's no ticks here at all. I'm saying that we haven't had any issue with them since the day we moved in. And I certainly haven't noticed that since the chickens went away several months ago, 
um, and the ducks have taken over patrol duties, any new incidents of ticks. I have to say, I think maybe based on the behavior I'm observing, one of the best birds for breaking tick cycles might be turkeys. Uh, because they are clearly predating on anything and everything that moves, and their eyesight is clearly beyond keen. It, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And they are clearly eating insects that I can't see, which would include ticks, you would think. Um, so I think that possibly one of the best poultry that we could use for breaking ticks cycles might actually have a perfect replicating cycle for our homestead use i.e. put some turkeys on the property in the spring, raise them for six months into the fall, have them for Thanksgiving, Christmas dinner, and maybe some other stuff around the holidays, and do it again every year. And that may or may not help. I'm not saying it will. I'm saying that if one didn't want chickens, uh, one might try turkeys as a substitute to augment the ducks. My concern with the ducks is that you got bill versus beak. you got round versus pointed. And they do an awful lot of eating, and they do an awful lot of predating. I just don't know how much tick action they would actually do. I think if they, they are aware of them, they'll eat them. But what I see is most of the stuff that they eat above grade seems to be stuff I can see. They eat leaves, they eat bugs. I mean, you see a fly go by them, they snap it right out of the air, a gnat right out of the air. But stuff to the size that I can observe. Most of the stuff that they eat that I think is beyond our ability to see is filter-fed when the water uh, penetrates the ground and they stick that beak in the ground and they kind of go back and forth through and they filter-feed uh, in water or mud. And they would certainly take, I think, just about anything out of that water or mud and break just about any cycle if that's where the cycle occurred, where a lot of the tick cycles don't actually occur below grade. It occurs in brush and things like that. So I don't know that you're going to have a huge impact on ticks with ducks, though I don't know that you're really having a huge impact on ticks with chickens. But back to Mark Shepard's thing to finish this one up. For a couple of years you see nothing and then this huge decline. I think that it may be all of this type of livestock, chickens, turkeys, ducks, uh, guinea hens, uh, just about anything other than geese. Geese are lousy predators. They're, they're a 99% grazer. But all of the other poultry that we think of, I think, probably feeds at least some on ticks. And it may take time for these cycles to uh, develop to where there's a proportional control for the property that the birds are on, where enough cycles of, of regrowth have been broken that there's actually a, a significant level of control that we can observe. But, but I'm really not sure about that. I, I have personally determined that the best way to control ticks is keep pasture and grass cut to ankle or below level. Uh, we had ticks in Honduras like you wouldn't believe. I'm talking like biblical ticks uh, to where when we first moved into the camp that we were on for six months, we had to check each other like monkeys a couple times a day uh, for these pinhead-sized ticks. We then paid some locals to come in. They came in with machetes, and they mowed this this multi-acre camp flat in a day. It was something to see. And they worked for about $2 a piece. And the tick incidents for people inside the camp went to almost zero almost immediately. Not all the way to zero and not immediately, but almost zero almost immediately by simply clearing out underbrush and what have you. Um, 
Now, of course, the food, forestry, and stuff like that, you have ground coverings and things like that. You're going to have wildlife. And let's face it, ticks are a wildlife species. But I think that it's usually walking through grasses and stuff that I tend to pick them up, or through actual forest, uh, we, we pick them up a lot in, in Arkansas. Um, so it's one of those things where you, you, you have to kind of balance things and just kind of take a wait-and-see attitude. But if you don't have a problem now, I don't know that you're going to see a problem because you went to ducks. But I don't necessarily that means that either one is a dynamite control mechanism, if that makes sense. Let's take a question for the expert counsel next. This question is for the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan himself, and it involves mead. What we, what we want to know about uh, this week, Michael, with meads is not so much making mead in of itself, but adjuncts to mead, things that we add to mead to make melmoles or or piments or, or all the different variations, herbs and fruits and uh, and different things that can be blended with meads. What are some of those things, and what is the right way, what is the right time to make these blends with meads? If I want to make a sizer or something like that, what do I use, when do I use it, and how do I use it to enhance mead beyond the simple golden nectar that is already amazing. What do you say, Mr. Jordan? This is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer from a bee-friendly company, on adding adjuncts to your mead. Oh man, I hope Jack was ready when he asked me this question. Mead is not just a good drink to me. I feel I'm a mead drinker. I may not be an expert judge on meads, but I've tried thousands of meads from all over the world. Some of the greatest meaderies and award-winning meads. To my travels, tasting even other beekeepers' meads and styles. Some meads that have gotten awards I didn't even like. But there are some meads I don't even care for. There are a few ways in adding adjuncts to your mead, such as when and what for. This year I gave out a door prize of a one-of-a-kind meat at Permaculture Voices that had true texture by adding chia seeds that would uh, hold flavor and burst in your mouth. There are a few different types that you can make. Sizers is a mead that is made with blending honey, apple juice, or cider. Capsules are mead flavors with chili peppers. Might also be considered a meloth. I'm not a big fan of it myself. Morad is a mead made with honey and mulberries. Romadel is a mead made with honey and rose hips. And I think it would be considered a fruit. It is made with rose petals. It could also be classified as a medleth. Mead with spices or herbs. Mulberry mormel or other mormels usually named after the fruit, such as raspberry mormel, cherry mormel. That's what makes it confusing when you start crossing over to other categories. For example... Capsel is a mead made from chili peppers. Are chilies considered a fruit or a spice? I guess it depends if you're, wearing, if you're using the chilies whole or just the seeds or grinding it up into cayenne pepper. Whatever your mead is called, there is a category for it. And when adding adjuncts to your mead, there are many different times and to add it. During primary fermentation, this is a common way of adding adjuncts to mead. There are several advantages of adding fruit to the primary. Fruit will add nutrients to the yeast and will help it regulate the pH in the fermentation. Fermentation itself will typically take less time with fruit added during the primary fermentation. Although some of the volatile 
aromatics and stuff that it gives off are uh, missing in the fruit character when it's retained, when the CO2 gas comes off. Many mead makers combine the primary and the secondary, kind of what I do, with fruit additions to attract extra fresh scents and a lot of fruit character. There's a big debate on merits of adding fruit to the primary. The main reason is giving to this is, a, is the last of bottle aromics. When the CO2 is belching off, you lose the smells by pushing them out. Adding it during second fermentation is when fruit is basic fermentation is over. And we're adding a, another to a primary finishing. With the added sugars and the lower level alcohol that may be maintained, uh, you have to watch out that the uh, adding of any kind of injunctions after the first uh, fermentation will restart. But remember when adding juices or any other fruits or spices may lower that alcohol content. You can add fruits or extracts just before bottling. You'll have to make sure that the yeast is dead or you'll make bottle bombs. I will tell you the best way to make your meads of any kind is in small batches. I teach one gallon mead in 15 minutes in, my, in many of my classes. Making small one gallon batches can help you enhance your meads and make sure that you're not wasting honey or adjuncts. Things like vanilla beans or mellow foam honey can be very expensive. Mellow foam honey is made from the I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it always right, but it's called Limonites albats plant. Uh, it makes the honey taste just like marshmallows. So you can make s'more mead or toasted vanilla marshmallow mead. It's very expensive to make, very expensive to taste, and very expensive to drink, but extremely exotic and extremely good. Mead making is an art all by itself. For many types of water used, honey, pollen, adjuncts, the aging, and even the containers it holds it in can flavor and give it different aromas. Man, thanks for the great question, and I hope you guys will try a glass of mead. Josiah Willingford and I had just got a glass of Earl Grey Lemon Honey Mead that was the gold medal winner at this year's Miser Cup. I'll tell you right now, I've never had a tea that gave me a buzz before. This has been the Bee Whisper of a Bee Friendly Company about adjuncts and mead. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy a good glass of mead. Hey, this is a comment for Jack. Jack, this is a testament to the power of your saying, Ask Clown, and Paul Wheaton saying, That's Just Marketing. From Raleigh, Plumber4200 on the forums and a lifetime MSB member, Jack, the Raleigh area has become quite a mecca for craft beers with 12 to 15 really good craft breweries all in a small geographical area. Two weeks ago, there was a beer festival in downtown Raleigh with breweries from all over the state in attendance. While we were walking through the streets filled with beer tents and food trucks, there was one line that had 40 to 50 people in it at all times, whereas the other tents had maybe 5 to 10 people in line. That tent was the Ass Clown Brewing Tent. That's right, Ass Clown Brewing out of Cornelius, North Carolina. Here's what is great. Nobody had ever heard of them. We asked tons of people, all of them in line. None of them have heard of Ass Clown Brewing or Cornelius, North Carolina, uh, which is lo located between Hickory and Charlotte. It was all just marketing, Jack. Paul Wheaton's right. 
They just loved the name Ass Clown Brewing. By the way, their beer was really good. The IPA was, was quite nice. But honestly, the shirts and hats were even better. We bought you a shirt, and we would love to send it to you. I don't need your home address, just a P.O. box. By the way, their tagline is Ass Clown Brewing. Drink one, don't be one. Jack, just thought I'd give you something fun, and uh, maybe you can put it on the show. Thanks for all you do. Talk to you soon. Well, well, that's really cool, and it does show a lot of like really interesting ways that things play out in socio mindset of individuals and how powerful marketing can be. Uh, I'm sure they make good beer, but I'm sure it's probably about as good as the beer that was in the other tents, and yet there were people lined up because, hey, it's different, and it's kind of cool, and we know what that is. I don't know that I can take any credit for this. I think Paul's right when he says, no, that's just marketing. But I think we have a lesson here. They made good beer. So even though it's just marketing, it didn't mean it wasn't a good product. That marketing can be used to market the good or the mundane or the poor. Uh, poor quality or downright dangerous. So Monsanto has excellent marketing that have convinced many people that it's okay to eat poison. Uh, on the you know the other side of the the coin, uh, Jeff Lawton has great marketing that has convinced many people that it makes sense to become responsible for yourself and grow your own food. All right, so those are polar opposites, both using marketing to the same end. Now, on the ass clown thing, I get a lot of credit for that, and I've been using it yes since the dawn of the show. I do have to confess that's not my word. I didn't invent ass clowns. Um, in fact, the first time I ever heard it was a gentleman I used to work with in sales several years, four or five years before I started the show, and I never heard it a lot. I never heard it as much as I do today, and I'd like to believe I am some way partially responsible for the term being used more, because it is a perfect description for so many individuals, especially people uh, that think they're helping, but they're not, like the Congress and the Senate and the President. In fact, I really love, there was a meme that went around on Facebook not too long ago, and it was a picture of the entire Congress in session, the Senate and the House together. It looked like a, uh, a State of the Union address, probably the President, Vice President, etc. there. And uh, it just said, this is why we can't have nice things. Uh, and it's because of those ass clowns, many instances, that we can't have nice things. And many ass clowns like them uh, throughout the world. But this gentleman I heard the term from actually used it to refer to his dogs. He said those dogs are a couple of ass clowns. And the, the word just stuck with me. Though I will say the first time I heard it used at a really um, high level of exposure was in the second Iron Man movie. And uh, Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, was talking to the Congress and the Senate, some kind of judiciary committee or something, uh, where they were investigating what he was doing. And he said, I tried to negotiate with these ass clowns. And that was actually the first time, other than myself, that I had ever heard anybody refer to the United States Congress as a bunch of ass clowns. And I... I wondered, could I have had anything at all to do with that? And I convinced myself that I didn't. When it happened, my wife punched me in the ribs and said, did you hear that? They took your word. And I'm like, I don't know that I get credit for that. Ironically, it is the case that things like TSP, the Survival Podcast, uh, have, have gotten so far-reaching that they do impact these larger things to a degree. There's a TV show I don't particularly care for, though I like Sherlock Holmes, uh, but it's 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 called it's called Sherlock, and it's based on the Sherlock Holmes character in modern day. And and, and frankly, I, I really don't care for uh, one of the actresses in the show at all. It's probably what jays me the whole thing. But a couple years ago, 
I heard from Brian Black over at uh, ITS, because he's like a Sherlock Holmes junkie, so he loves this show. And he says, dude, you were just on Sherlock. I'm like, what, what the heck, what, what, what? He goes, no, no, Sherlock, the TV show on CBS. I'm like, I was on there? He goes, no, no, your, your logo was on there. And there was an episode... Uh, of, of Sherlock on CBS where there was a do girl's door that was like a hacker and it was part of the story and uh, there was a bunch of stuff on her door, different stickers on her door and one was the Val logo now that wasn't something similar that wasn't something kind of sort, it was my logo uh, featured on CBS uh, you know, primetime television as part of their storyline so maybe just maybe maybe just maybe Someone involved in the, the script writing for the Iron Man film somehow was influenced. It's, it's possible. There's no way to really know. I'll actually tell you that the thing that I think I actually started that is now as mainstream as hell is an ass clowns. I think it's rainbow farting unicorns. Uh, I had heard ass clowns for a very, very long time. And, and, and years and years ago, I was doing a show, and I, I, I was talking about, you know, you can't pass a law just to make things happen. Right, like you can't just say we're going to pass a law that makes poverty illegal, and then no one will be poor. And that's what government thinks it can do. It thinks it can legislate solutions to these complex problems that need to be solved by individuals. And when they try to legislate a solution, they actually hamper the true solution. And I said something to the effect of Congress can pass a law that everybody gets a unicorn. Everybody gets a unicorn, and, and, and it's the law. Everybody has to be provided with a unicorn. And that, and that once a month, your unicorn will fart a rainbow for you, and a guardian angel will slide down your rainbow and grant you three wishes once a month, something like that effect. And up until that effect, uh, uh, point, I, I'd heard rainbows and unicorns associated with each other, but I never heard anybody ever, ever, ever infinity say anything about a unicorn farting a rainbow. And there are now memes of unicorns farting rainbows and flying unicorns who have rainbows coming out of their asses. And there's gag gifts and little bags that say, you know, unicorn farts. And it's just like a little empty plastic bag with air in it. And then uh, there's all kinds of stuff uh, around that right now. And I really think that that entire thing started on TSP. And so that's not an ego thing. It's more of a lesson thing. I think we need to be aware that our actions, our deeds, our words, the things that we don't think anybody really cares about, can actually take on a life of their own, sometimes without us even knowing. I mean, if I didn't pay attention to Facebook, I wouldn't know anything about the fact that unicorn, except you guys send me stuff, right? The unicorn farts are invoked. I wouldn't know that happened. Uh, if Brian didn't watch Elementary, and is that what it's called, Elementary or Sherlock? I don't know. Whatever it is. Um, if if y'all didn't watch that show and tell me about it, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. And it wasn't like that many people told me about it when it happened. Um, and I think that maybe there's a lot of things that you uh, individually out there are doing and saying and demonstrating that are impacting people that you'll never be aware of. And that means we need to be mindful of that. And we need to really do the best we can to, to make things better for ourselves and our families, not so much because we need to put them first, even though we do, because by doing so, we actually encourage others to do so without even knowing it. And we can learn that from something as simple as Ask Clown Brewing Company or Rainbow Farting Unicorns. Anyway, that was a, uh, a really interesting and, and very 
fun call for me. So thanks for that. Uh, what I actually want to do next is take another expert counsel call. This is one that's it's my personal question for Chef Keith Snow. I, Chef Snow, I have always loved chorizo. Um, most of the chorizo you buy in a store is either not very good, or if it is good, it's still not good for you. Um, the only really good chorizo I've ever had that I've purchased is higher-end stuff that you have to order, and it gets pretty expensive pretty fast. And I've tried some recipes to make my own, and they just don't seem very chorizo-y. They seem like good sausage, but not what I'm really looking for in a chorizo. So I was wondering, because it is such a versatile sausage and something we can do so much with, and I think of like, you know, Jerusalem artichoke with crumbled homemade chorizo and eggs. That sounds like a really great thing. Do you have a recipe or technique that I can use to make my own chorizo at home for my own cooking? Hey, everybody. It's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer Jack's question about chorizo. First of all, let's learn to pronounce it. The spelling C-H-O-R-I-Z-O. Uh, this is a Spanish word, and it's pronounced chorizo with a th, chorizo. And uh, those of you golf fans that may have heard of a Spanish golfer back in the day, he was a Masters champion, Jose Maria Olazabal. He had a z in his name, so that's how this word uh, tends to be pronounced. So chorizo. Now, what is it? Basically, there's two different distinct types of this sausage. A Spanish variety and a Mexican variety. First of all, we'll talk, talk about the Spanish one. Generally, it's pork, salt, garlic, and smoked paprika. And that's um, one of the big departures from the Mexican variety. So smoked paprika is pretty awesome stuff. Um, the other thing that's interesting about the Spanish variety, this is a cured sausage. So the ingredients with generally some cure are packed into natural casings, and they are allowed to hang. And you can see this type of sausage either semi-soft or fully dry, so kind of shriveled up looking. It might have some white powder on it. And these are the sausages that are ready to eat. So these cured chorizo sausages from Spain are ready to eat. The Mexican variety is not. We'll talk about that in a minute. So you can buy these. Uh, I'm just going to give you a quick website. It's La Tienda, T-I-E-N-D-A, latienda.com. They sell uh, quite a few varieties of really nice Spanish um, sausage. So you can go over there and check it out. Now, you can slice it and eat it. It's a little more sophisticated than the Mexican variety. It's less oily. Um, so it's just a totally different animal. Um, but moving on to... And, and making it, can you make it? Sure, you definitely could make a Spanish chorizo at home. But this is going to require some uh, charcuterie skills because you're hanging a meat product. You have to have the right humidity. Um, everything has to be right for the proper bacteria to get on and in this thing and to cure it. So this is um, something that uh, definitely takes some special knowledge. And um, I'm not saying I don't recommend trying it. It's just... It's not foolproof. So, moving right along to the Mexican variety. Now, what's what's the deal with this stuff? Well, it's uh, usually raw pork, and you can buy it in the store. It comes in uh, usually fake casings, and uh, you can get it in real casings too, but you're going to probably need to be at a specialty butcher. So, it's just ground pork, garlic, chili, 
powder, like different chilies. They use lots of different chili powders. A lot of times it has vinegar and spices, oregano, things like that. So it is a lot more, uh, it's not more sophisticated in taste, um, but it has a lot more ingredients going on. Um, now, do I like the Mexican variety? Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a jazzy sausage and it's, um, fairly easy to make. And I'm going to post a recipe because I don't have time to go into it here. Over at harvesteating.com, there'll be a recipe and I'll probably post it over at the TSB fa- uh, Facebook page as well. Um, but it's very easy to make with, you know, ingredients that anybody can get. So, what about using it? And that's that's the most important thing. So, Jack, uh, I'm going to give you a recipe to make your own really nice. And I've made this before, and it is awesome stuff, uh, particularly at breakfast time. I find that it really shines at breakfast time. So something like chorizo and eggs. And uh, I used to make this a while ago. And I want people not to be confused. There's another sausage out there, another outlier um, from Portugal, and this is called linguiça. And that is a similar beast, a lot more garlic, if I remember correctly, in linguiça. So um, the people over in that part of the world really like those style of sausages. But back to this Mexican one for breakfast. Um, a simple recipe is taking uh, like an Idaho potato, dice it up into small cubes, and then get out your best, you know, cast iron skill would be great here, um, a little bit of lard or even some oil, and those potatoes would go in there on a fairly low heat, and they need to cook for a good bit until you start to see some color and you could toss them. And then you would add in some of your raw chorizo, your Mexican chorizo, and start to cook that. Now it's crumbled. It'll take only a few minutes for it to cook. And then you take, I don't know, four or five beautiful farm-fresh eggs, whip those things up, and uh, pour them on top of it with some dry-aged cheddar, a little bit of cilantro, mix it around. Guys and gals, that is an awesome breakfast. Another really neat way to use um, chorizo is to make a chorizo and white bean soup. And this is kind of um, very hearty, thick, definitely a wintertime thing, in my opinion. Um, and I'm also going to post the... Uh, soup recipe at Harvest Eating. And just going forward, guys and gals, with these questions on Fridays at TSP, I'll try to put some additional content to make uh, make the question more usable and relevant for you all. But one of my favorite ways to use it is with nachos. And sure, you can make nachos with regular store-bought um, tortilla chips, or you can just take one shortcut, buy the um, white or even yellow corn tortillas in the store, and those are those are the little six-inch round ones. And take those and cut them into fourths. So one six-inch um, tortilla in half and half again, you've got four pieces. Now you can fry those. You don't want to fry them too crispy, but just enough. Take them out, put them on paper towels, um, and then salt them pretty well. Now take your chorizo and fry it in, in a skillet until it's fully cooked, and then you're going to layer those beautiful homemade nachos with your cooked chorizo and then you can put a really nice what I call white crema sauce and this is a silky white sauce and it has some sharp cheddar cheese in it some cilantro and you kind of pour it's it's sort of liquidy it's not like a thick gloopy Velveeta nasty queso it has a little bit of uh, viscosity to it but you just picture these beautifully toasted um, corn tortilla triangles with a little bit of salt on them and this uh, 
amazingly spiced chorizo all crumbled all on top of it. Some of this white cheese, this velvety white cheese sauce, some sliced pickled red onions and maybe also some um, something like uh, green onions, maybe a little pico de gallo on top. And those are amazing. And normally when you get nachos, you're dealing with beef and it might not be highly seasoned beef or it may just be the type in a restaurant where they just kill it with cumin. So it's just like a cumin bomb. But this chorizo with all the chili powder and all these spices going on, it's it's got just the right amount of fat to it with that white cream sauce. Man, that is some good stuff. And that is basically the deal with chorizo. So Spanish and Mexican, both good, but totally different. So with that, uh, it's been Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. Do visit harvesteating.com. Also, listen to my podcast, guys and gals. It's in the iTunes store. You can subscribe there. And uh, I appreciate all of the TSPers that visit my site on a regular basis. Thank you so much. Jack, thank you. And hopefully you'll um, make some chorizo. And uh, those of you that heard last week's show, um, I did post the Blackberry Porter barbecue sauce over at the TSP Facebook. So with that, it's been Chef Keith Snow. Great to hear from you, Jack, and I hope everybody has a great weekend. Take care. Hey, Jack, this is Matt. Uh, several of your podcasts you've mentioned where when you're starting a food forest, you need to plant 8 to 10 support trees, species, um, per tree that you're trying to keep. But I noticed on some of your videos that there's not that many trees, and I was wondering if there's certain circumstances where you would not need as many. Anyway, any help would be great. Thank you. Well, there's a there's a difference between maybe you should and you need, and I think that the more fragile your soils are, the more harsher conditions are, uh, whether it be from fragile soils in the tropics or shallow soils and baking heat like I have here, the more you can really benefit from support trees. Well, what actually happened was the year that I did the installation, I messed around and was unable to get a sufficient quantity of the things that I wanted to put in for support. So what I did was I fell back on using annuals as support, and I put in a, a large number of uh, black oil sunflower, uh, some other sport cover crop species, and red cowpea. And that did a really good job of covering the system, and it did a really good job of sheltering. And I actually believe that a lot of stuff that I didn't lose, I would have lost without it. There were places where it just didn't take, though, and it really could have used more shade on the soil itself, not so much on the plants, but on the soil to keep the soil covered and cool. This year we went through and we added 150 plants a mixture of autumn olive and black locust, plus all the other sport species that are in there. It's probably not 8 to 1. It's probably not 7 to 1. It's probably about 2 or 3 to 1, and it probably should be higher. What happened with my installation is I listened to too many people tell me too many things about what wasn't needed, and I let that cloud my judgment of just doing what Jeff Lawton says to do. And it proved two things. Number one, that no, you don't need to. And number two, that you probably should. I think we need to have a better understanding of the roles that putting support species into a system actually does. Everyone's fixated on nitrogen fixing, and I think that's an important thing. 
But I think it's less important than maybe some people make it out to be. Here's a couple of reasons why. One, nitrogen-fixing trees and shrubs only fix a, a large surplus amount of nitrogen after they begin to mature quite a bit and get some real size on them. And it takes an awful lot of solar energy to make a little bit of nitrogen for any nitrogen-fixing plant. So the actual amount of nitrogen that they you know, potentially release into the soil is, is significant, but it's probably not to the level and quantity that we would think that it is in our heads when we're designing these systems. But they do some other things that are really important. Number one, since they do fix nitrogen, they do grow in deficient soils, and therefore they produce biomass that can prove the soil bi biology for everything else. So the first thing is that they'll grow, and we know that compost is generally about a 1-1-1 ratio. So compost is usually, if you look at the NPK, it's one, one part nitrogen, uh, one part uh, phosphorus, one part potassium. Now, that doesn't mean it's a third, a third, and a third. That means it has a one-one-one ratio, okay? Uh, so it's, it's actually a very mild fertilizer, but it's very, very bioavailable. So if we make a lot of compost, we end up with a lot of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, and biological activity and things like that. When we put in these support species, what we're actually doing is putting a large amount of biomass into the system that makes a lot of compost both, both above and below soil. When we chop and drop, the roots that are down in the soil will self-prune. Eventually, we kill these trees uh, through chop and drop, chop and drop for season after season. They give up the ghost, and all the roots stay in the ground and rot into the ground. So we're basically doing an above-ground and a below-ground sloppy compost. It's not perfectly mixed, but that's, that's, that's adding a lot of nutrient to the soil beyond the fixing of nitrogen. But the tree is able to survive in that environment because it can make its own. So it may be more important to the total health of the system that that nitrogen fixer can live and grow fast and produce lots of biomass to keep the ground cool and, and provide a shaded environment for our productive trees to come up in. And I think that's the biggest thing missing in my system right now, which is why we've added what we can. Um, do you need to do it? I think that people would have very differing opinions on it. Again, I think the shallower the soil and the more hostile environment, the more important it is. I think when people say, well, I put mine in in Michigan in a deep, dark, black soil, and I put you know one food forest over here without it and one food forest over here with it, and I can't tell the hill high beans difference in the yields, I think they're probably tr it's probably true. I don't know that there's no benefit anyway, though. I don't know that there's not a more long-term stabilized benefit to the system by using the nitrogen fixtures and the support trees. But you don't need 7 to 1. You don't need 9 to 1. That's what Jeff Lott recommends, and he's been doing this a hell of a lot longer than me, and he's probably right, is, is the optimum thing. Remember that anything in permaculture is always it depends, and it depends on where you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it, what your budget is, what you want to do, what you want to accomplish, and how long you're willing to wait for the results. So it's not a need, it's not even a rule, it's a recommendation for optimum performance based on the individual who's making it, their paradigm. So Jeff's paradigm is very much tropics and subtropics. Uh, and the soils there aren't necessarily shallow, but they are fragile. Uh, you get so much rain, so fast, so often, that even though the soil looks good, it's nutrient deficient because the nutrient literally leaches out and washes away. You come into, uh, and his other experience is land that's not far off of what I have. You know, Jordan and, and the Middle East. Uh, same latitude as, as Dallas, Texas. Jordan is on the same latitude as Dallas, Texas. Gets a little less cold because it's a little closer to the water. 
but it's the same harshness of environment. And in, in this environment, a lot of places where you don't see more trees, it probably would be better that you did. And it's also, well, what are we talking about? If we have an area of, of you know, 20 by 60 that's sheet mulched, probably not going to put a ton of spore species in there. Uh, in the, the Zone 4 food forests across three-quarters of an acre, that's where we're putting more sport species in. And the answer to why is less maintenance is given and less maintenance is required. So the support trees do the maintenance that you would do if you were there. So you may not need anywhere near as much of your sheet mulching a quarter-acre backyard because the sheet mulch is performing the same function that the atrophy of the tree over time would perform. So the more I learn, the more I learn to stay away from saying anything's a rule or you have to or even that you should and basically saying these are all the things that you can do and you have to pick and choose what makes the most sense for you. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another question for an expert council member. Oh, but I just remembered I wanted to say something. The, the caller with the Ask Clown Brewing Company had a shirt for me. If you ever want to send me something, this is for anybody, um, it's usually better to check first, but if you just want to send me something, if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members, at the bottom you'll see how you can join. You'll also see a, a place that says pay by check and money order or silver. If you click that, there's a form. On that form is the mailing address to our receiving service that receives all our mail. So you can use that address. So anybody that wants to send anything is always free to look up that address. And the truth is it's not hard to find out where we live if you really want to. We run a farm and we sell to the general public, and it's called Nine Mile Farm in Hazel, Texas. So if you really wanted to know, you could find it there. Anyway, um, back to, oh, but no, they're gonna, people are going to come and take your stuff and whatever. You want to do that, that's, you know. Sorry about your luck, man. Anyway, um, good way to become Charlie Food. But <laughs> my next question is actually for Ben Falk from Whole Systems Design on the Expert Council. And my question uh, for Mr. Falk is one that I don't think anybody really uh, bothers to ask. These folks like Mr. Falk that spend their time teaching many students. And I think there's a lot of insight that can come from it. So here's what it is. When you teach PDCs and other courses, what are some of the biggest misconceptions you see in young, excited students? And or what irrational fears do you find you most often have to help people work through so they can truly grasp what permaculture can and can't do? A small side question as well. You did a great piece on Autumn Olive last week, and you mentioned Gumi. Uh, I'm growing that too, and I should get fruit for the first time this year, but I've never tasted it. Is it in any way better than Autumn Olive, bigger, sweeter, or is it pretty much the same? What say you, Mr. Falk? The biggest misconceptions I see in our permaculture students um, have to do, I think in general, with how much work um, it is to establish systems, you know, living biological systems that, that feed you and provide you with, with basic needs like, like food, medicine, and fiber and, and fuel. Um, I think people tend to have an idea because perennial plants are such a, a, a basis um, as far as how they're used in permaculture systems that, you know, these systems are in that, that once you plant them, they're all set. And, you know, I, I spent actually yesterday, um, quite a while rescuing trees I planted three, four, five, six, seven years ago and mulching them and just kind of, you know, rescuing stuff in zone four. And, um, you know, labor and management are really the limiting factors. And these systems don't just set themselves up. Of course, we do align ourselves with natural systems and we're hopefully not fighting uphill as, as much as many systems. But a lot of the aspects of these systems are a lot of work 
to set up. And then they are work, you know, in the maintenance phase as well. Um, I think the idea of the designer in the recliner that I, I've heard, you know, passed down as a Bill Mollison quote is something I don't really understand that much. I mean, I, of course, trees are a perennial producer and, and there's a, a time you have to put a lot in and then they just give back to you. That's very true, but there's still a lot of tweaking of systems and certainly any, any non-biological systems, there's continual maintenance. So we want to minimize those. Um, I think, so I think that's a big one. I think people often also tend to think they're going to make a living from their permaculture setups more easily than, than is really realistic. Um, like in any field, I think if you're not really great at what you're doing and doing what you love, which is also a key part of doing something well, and then have a, an audience or manufacture and make cultivated audience for what you do, you're probably not going to make a living doing it. Um, so that's, that's another big one. Um, there are others, but those are probably the two biggest ones. And then I think as far as your question about autumn olive and gumi um, being different, I tend to think gumi are a little tastier. They're both great. Um, I can't really think of any specific differences offhand, except that I think our gumis are probably a little little bit preferable to the autumn olive, but we have selected varieties of autumn olive, so they're probably a bit better than the, the typical wild autumn olives. But they're both great plants. Just give them a lot of sun pretty good drainage. They can take very poor soil. Thanks a lot. Hey, Jack. Karim from Chicagoland calling. Uh, just wanted to give people a walking to freedom pro tip. I realized now that I'm very, very close to moving out of Illinois and over to Texas, that Illinois, number one, doesn't have reciprocity with Texas. Number two, I don't have a carry permit from any other state, and I'm going to have to wait about 180 days to get a Texas carry permit. So make sure to research your laws at getting a CCL. Thanks. Bye. That is actually one of a, of a major overlooked uh, issues for a lot of people uh, when they move in between states, that some states require uh, that you have residency for 180 days before they will issue you a permit to carry. Uh, this is primarily not done to inconvenience new people moving into a state. It's in some ways done to allow for updating of interstate communications when you get your driver's license in a state. Uh, trust me, there's all kinds of computers going everywhere to find out if somebody wants to talk to you uh, uh, somewhere else, including the state you came from. So a little bit of that. I think what it's more for is to prevent problems with people doing something like this. Let's say Karim wanted a Texas uh, concealed carry permit, and his state didn't want him to have one. Well, he might come down here to Texas and just get one and pretend to live with me for a month and then go home. That wouldn't do him any good in Illinois, but it might do him a good in a lot of other states. That might be another reason. I don't really know. I think once you become a resident of a state, uh, you're a citizen of that state. They certainly start taking whatever taxes they charge from you on the day you get there. They should just do it, but they don't. Now, here's the interesting thing. I may have a solution for Corinne. The state of Florida will issue you a non-resident concealed carry permit. The state of Florida doesn't care where you live. It doesn't care if your state has uh, a concealed carry permit. They will, they will require you to prove proficiency, and that will be through taking a course that you've graduated, and submit to a black check and give them some money, and they will issue you a permit. 
Um, once you have that, it does you no good in Illinois, but it is certainly uh, seen as a reciprocity with the state of Texas. So you have that option. So it is conceivable that what you could do is acquire for yourself a Florida permit for non-resident concealed carry, use it within reciprocity states, and after uh, your 180 days, then go ahead and get your Texas concealed carry license, which will also, by the time you do that, likely be an open carry license as well here for the state of Texas for handguns. The one thing you will have to check with the state of Texas about, because I'm not sure on this one, and it wasn't easy to find, but I'm sure uh, a call to uh, the, uh, the the licensing folks at the state capitol will get you a quick answer. What, I don't like any government, but one thing I can say for Texas state government, they are pretty daggone helpful over the phone when you have a question about anything from something like this to how you file uh, sales tax returns or something. They're, they're, they're the best government people I've ever talked to when I needed something from them. Uh, so making a phone call would verify this. There are some states that, yes, they recognize a Florida permit to carry. They also recognize a Florida non-resident permit to carry for everybody except their own citizens. And the, what they'll say is, well, if you are in our state and we issue a carry permit, even though we have reciprocity with Florida, why aren't you getting your, your permit with us? I don't know if Texas does that or not. Uh, but for some of you, whether Texas does or not, that find yourself in this position, that would be one avenue that you could explore to acquire a Florida non-resident permit uh, and then use that permit to carry in another state. And there are people that um, also do the same thing because they routinely move between two or three states for a year or six months at a time long enough um, that they're required to get a state license because they're there for more than the time the state says they can be there as a visitor uh, or because they're on some kind of a job where they do two-year rotations or something like that. So it's very short-term. Uh, and they know they're going to be moving. And as long as those states have reciprocity, they'll go to a state like Florida that has a non-resident permit and acquire that and avoid the whole thing altogether. I know that from talking to somebody. That's how I knew to give you this little piece of advice. Again, it may or may not work, but if anybody knows the, the case, I know that, again, Texas recognizes a Florida uh, license to carry. Uh, they, they will recognize it from a non-Florida resident, but do they recognize it for a Texas resident that has chosen to acquire their, their license to carry from a state outside of Texas? That, that'd be very interesting. The other thing you could do is, uh, well, it would just take away your Illinois one, but I mean, you, you could get here a little bit early, uh, get your license using somebody. You know, using an address of somebody you'd stay with or something like that, start to clock a little sooner and just do a change of address when you get your permanent home. Uh, but it's an issue, and it's one of those things that's kind of messy, and it just seems to me if we followed the dadgone constitution where it says shall not be infringed, uh, we wouldn't wouldn't have the problem. There's an interesting way I think federal supremacy could be used here if we had a federal government that wasn't destroying the rights of its people on an ongoing basis. I think one of the things that would fall within the federal government's power would to be to create a federal license to carry uh, that does not interfere with any state's uh, ability to issue their own. Um, and say that if you have the federal license, you can carry within the borders of the nation. Now, you'd have to have a 
you know, a nation that was pro-Second Amendment to do that. Uh, the other thing that they could do is they could create a, a state-required reciprocity without actually doing that, because that, I think, would be unconstitutional. There was movements to get a, a law passed that says if your state does concealed carry and any other state does concealed carry and anybody has any license from any of those states for concealed carry, that you shall accept the other states. So let's say the state of Georgia didn't have reciprocity with the state of Illinois, and uh, this law passed, then it would basically, Georgia, you would have to have reciprocity. I think that would make it harder to get more uh, liberal concealed carry uh, laws passed. I think that would be a difficult thing. But if the federal government said we made our own, and you have to recognize ours if you have concealed carry. I think that would be a little bit different and would get around that constitutional issue. I'm not saying it should be done, and it doesn't really matter because, you know, our federal government is not a proponent of, of citizens' right to keep and bear arms, let alone to, to bear them by carrying them concealed or openly in, in public uh, outside of what they consider acceptable. So it's not going to happen, but it'd be an interesting thing. Anyway, with that, let's take another one for the expert counsel. This one is for uh, council member Darby Simpson, who runs Simpson Family Farms. And Darby's a full-time farmer. And I, I thought this meshed really well uh, with my question to, uh, to Ben Falk, because even though Darby wouldn't call himself a permaculturist. I think in many ways he is. It's a big disconnect, I think, between sustainable agriculture and permaculture and what is and what isn't what. Um, but Darby makes a living uh, from from tending the land and taking care of livestock. And Darby's a farmer, a beyond organic producer. And he knows the work that it takes to be able to do these things. So my question uh, for Darby this week was simply, can you tell us what's going on at your place this week? As a full-time farmer raising chicken, pigs, turkeys, what's the first week of May like? What are you spending the most of your time doing right now? And how is everything going for you this year? So now we've heard from one member that says it's more work than you think it is, and uh, now we're going to hear from a member that tells us, well, what kind of work is it really, uh, Darby? Jack, things are really in full swing here at the farm. Once we get to the first week of May, everything is firing on all cylinders, and we're just uh, busy from sun up until sundown, it seems like. Uh, currently, we've got about 500 birds out on pasture that we're moving every day, and we've we've still got about three weeks to go uh, before those will be ready for slaughter. Uh, this week, we had our second batch of 500 birds uh, come in, so we had to get our uh, brooder all cleaned out and prepped and, and put back together so we could get those guys uh, tucked in there. Uh, we're moving the cows every day, doing rotational grazing with about 21 head of stalker animals, um, giving them a fresh paddock of grass and, and watching the pastures take off. Um, we've also got our, uh, first bred cows on farm this spring. We bought those last fall and that's really exciting. Uh, this is something that's new for us since we have uh, just been buying stalkers up until this point. And really they're getting ready to cab just about any day. So we're watching them closely and preparing to, uh, learn something brand new since this is our first go around with that. We've also got three groups of pigs up and running. We've got a, a group of 13 in, in one uh, forested paddock, and we've got a group of eight in another forested paddock, and then we've got a group of 15 in our training corral. And we're actually in the process of getting ready to uh, finish fencing a third uh, forested pig paddock so we can get the guys in the corral out of the corral and, and into the woods where they belong. 
Um, on top of that, uh, we are getting ready to convert another 16 acres of row crop field into perennial chemical-free hay. So we've actually been busy working with our tenant farmer, having him get the soil prepped for us, and um, had to go pick up the grass drill this week. Uh, I had to go pick up about $2,500 worth of grass seed uh, to plant out there. Um, you know, and that's that's going to be about three days of planting. That's hopefully going to start um, late late this week or, or early next week. It's it's behind schedule because of all the rain we've had. We had a very cold, wet spring uh, so far, uh, so we've got to get that knocked out in the next few days. Um, and then we're also uh, getting ready to add another 1,600 feet of fence for our cows. We're actually going to run uh, this and connect two big open grazing areas. Uh, with the 1600 feet and then that's actually going to fence in about 14 acres of, um, uh, you know, hardwood forest that we can graze the cows in. And I'm really excited about that because I want to start managing that forest, uh, very intensely, start taking out the junk trees, the dead trees, opening up the canopy a little bit, uh, and, and going in and starting to create a savanna like atmosphere with the cows and, managing that that forest ground so we can really extend our grazing and it gives us some nice areas to put the cows in in late summer when it gets really hot here and gives them a break from the heat and then of course on top of all that this past saturday we had our uh, two outdoor farmers markets that we we attend both of those kicked off uh one up in indianapolis and then one down by indiana university in bloomington so we're off and running, doing two markets a week, and we've got marketing that we're doing, and we've got some pigs that are going to slaughter next week, and it's just a busy, busy time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy, but man, it's a, it's a good life. And uh, you know, even my my frustrating days, my really bad days here, oftentimes are better than uh, some of my best days back in the engineering office from years ago. So that is what's happening here at the farm, Jack. Uh, Appreciate Let me call in and, and chat about that with the listeners. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to know a little bit more about me, you can check out my website at DarbySimpson.com. There is a lot of uh, free information, free articles out there that I type up. Uh, that's a bunch of great how-to information, at least I hope you think it's great, on how to raise uh, 100% grass-fed beef, forest-raised pork, pastured poultry, um, yeah, a lot of uh, reviews on equipment and stuff like that. So head on out there and check it out. Again, DarbySimpson.com. All that information is free. And then if you feel like you want to go more in depth, uh, check out the consultation tab. I do offer one-on-one -on -one consultations for folks that are uh, looking to get started with a farming enterprise where they want to make some money. Thanks again, Jack. Take care. Hi, Jack. If my goal is sustainability, how many food trees are too many? and can I effectively use the space for something else? Here's the situation. We purchased a homestead near your old stomping grounds and done Canon PA to be specific. And we already have a large garden, another one planned for next year, six by 12 plots. My water catchment system is new, but I'm expanding and I'm looking to gain more food security. On the property is a cleared area about 40 by 60 feet. It's in contrast to the timbered land I already own. It looks like it could have been a small pasture in a previous life, and I'm thinking about putting a chicken tractor on it uh, with about a half dozen birds and moving it around for the next year or two to condition and fertilize the soil. Nothing planned grows there now, uh, just two large white pines. 
but weeds and brambles overtake the area every spring, and I have to fight them back. There's a lot of leaf cover, and the soil seems fertile, and I'm planting a small orchard of about 9 to 12 trees in another area of my property. Is more of these food trees better, or should I be considering planting grass and using it for a pasture again? And uh, is there something I haven't considered that I should be using for? I also wanted to thank you. When I originally started uh, prepping with the wife, less was less than enthused. And uh, even after I agreed to buy a homestead in her area with her family, um, she we got a lot of fights about how I spent time and money. But now that we've moved from short-term disaster preparedness to the sustainable living, uh, in which I use many of your permaculture techniques and money management methods, um, she's begun to see where we're actually heading. Uh, even earmarking materials, food, um, and other things for our preps, and being really supportive of the projects and plans I'm using on my homestead. Uh, I just want to say I appreciate all your advice and hearing your perspective. Even if I don't agree with you on everything, um, you have really helped my family on our road to a better life, and uh, thank you. Well, the answer to how many trees to put in a 40-by-60-foot area is a great big giant. It depends. First of all, you're going to cut down the pine trees. Are you or aren't you? That has a lot to do with the exposure they're going to get. And pines, if they're spaced out pretty well, may not provide a huge amount of shade if they're a certain kind of pine. It might provide a bunch of shade if they're another kind of pine. And if you trim them way up the the, the, the trunk, they may not uh, provide much shade at all during parts of the day, but only in the afternoon. And that might be good. you got to decide, first of all, what we're going to do with the pine tree. Um, for, for the sake of simplicity... I'm going to assume that you're going to go, I don't want these things, and I'm going to cut them down. I'm going to use them for timber. I'm going to use them for hoogles. I'm going to use them for building a shelter. I'm going to use them to, I don't know, hit somebody over the head by having a giant pick it up like a club, whatever. They're going to go away, and I'm just going to address the spacing issue in of itself because whatever's there, you have to work around or you have to remove it. So we could, in a 40-by-60 area, plant four or five really big full-size trees and turn it into pasture and just let it be what it is. Uh, or we could do a high-density orchard with spacing as close as six feet apart. We could do it with all uh, productive trees six feet apart. Or we could go six foot apart, and every other one of them could be something like a locust or a mimosa for sports species. Uh, if we're going to do that, uh, either one of those, we're going to have a very close density and we're going to have a lot more maintenance to do because we're going to be responsible to keep those trees at a manageable size where they're productive. So we're probably going to have to prune in the spring, we're going to prune in the fall, and we're going to prune twice the new growth, half of the new growth off every summer. We're going to train them with no central leader. We're going to do a lot of work like what you would find for Dave Wilson's uh, nursery if you go to his site and look up backyard nurseries. And you'll see that he might do something as dense as I just said, or he might put four trees in one hole and then space those six to eight feet apart. And the goal with these high-density small orchards like this is not to get a whole bunch of fruit at one time. It's to get a little bit of fruit all season long. And the best way we can do that if we want to go that high density is plant all the trees with the same rootstock or the same equivalent-sized rootstock. So if we're going with plums and apples, we're not going to put the plums on M111, which is an apple rootstock. We find the plum rootstock that results in about the same size tree, and every plum goes on that rootstock. 
And the reason we do that is it makes it very easy to maintain everything about the same height. It evens things out a little bit for us. If we're going to put four trees in the same hole, it's probably a good idea that they're related species that are all in the same rootstocks because, again, we get easier to control that density. We could back this up a little bit and go to a little bit intensive, more conventional uh, high-production orchard with spacings of 8 to 10 feet. If we do that, then we're going to grow trees with canopies out to about 8 feet, 7 feet, 6 feet, depending on how far we space them. At 8 feet, I'm going to want to train my canopies to about 6 foot across. At 10 feet, I'll train my canopies to about 8 foot across, along with a 2 foot space between the canopies. That gives me room to work. It gives flow for air. I get ripening of fruit, and there's nothing wrong with that either. I could go with 8 foot spacing, between the rows, but six-foot spacing between the trees and train, train the trees a little bit smaller and run chicken tractors through there, and I can make my chicken tractor up to about seven foot six inches wide. I can run six-foot spacings like a grid if I want to in that space, and I can make a five-and-a-half-foot wide chicken tractor that slides right up and down those rows. I can just make a long, skinny one if I want to put chickens in there. And I can run them under those trees, and they'll be happy because they'll be covered. They'll be getting fallen fruit. If I'm smart, I can even build a chicken tractor with kind of a two-inch grid roof where fruit, fruit can fall through the chicken tractor, but the chicken can't get out of the chicken tractor. That's another way I could do that. Uh, for prep, I'm probably going to sheet mulch an area that size. It's not that big. It's got brambles and briars and stuff like that. I'd probably go in there personally, depending on – I'd have to know the whole outlay to know would I take these pine trees out. Do they serve a function? Assuming I was going to take the pine trees out, I'd cut the pine tree stumps close to the ground. I'd leave them in the ground. I wouldn't try to grind them out or nothing like that. I'd go in there with a, a bush hog or uh, with a weed eater or a scythe, whatever, and I would cut it as low to the ground as possible. I'd probably hit the whole area with some white vinegar, full-strength concentrated white vinegar, just to knock back the weedy growth just a little bit. And with that amount, again, you'd probably go to Walmart or another big box store and say, when do you guys do your stocking? And you have available uh, multiple cardboard boxes that they give away. Uh, and, you know, so you want them in large quantity, you can go get a pickup truck loaded that for free. I'd put two layers of cardboard across the whole thing. Uh, before I did that, I would put down a layer of compost. Maybe you don't have to, as fertile as it is. If that's the case, just put a layer of compost over top of your um, of your cardboard. I'd put a layer of straw, especially if you can find untreated straw. I'd put another layer of compost. I'd put another layer of wood mulch. And whenever I planted a tree, I would pull back all that mulch, get down to cardboard. I'd cut a hole in that cardboard. I'd dig a hole, throw a couple handfuls of cardboard, uh, not cardboard, throw a couple handfuls of compost in that hole and plant that tree into that hole. Uh, and you, you probably can't mess that up. And then the spacing all comes down to how much time do you want to spend, how much money do you want to spend on the trees, how much fruit can you use, uh, what can you get your hands on based on the time of year you want to do the planting. But the answer in the spacing for this type of situation is anywhere from six foot or even four foot, really, really close, intensive managed like a bush, uh, all the way up to, you know, 12 feet. I wouldn't. I wouldn't space trees much further than 12 feet apart for this type of production, especially on a small area. I have places where my trees are at 8 to 10 feet spacing. I have spaces where I have trees as close as 4 foot, 5 foot, 6 foot to each other. And um, it's all about you pruning and controlling and managing. So if you want more fruit, that's a good place to put it. You can also consider doing some things with more of a shrub nature. I mean, there's no reason you couldn't go in there. And, I mean, and you're, you're in Pennsylvania, you said, so blueberries do wonderful. 
So good high bush blueberries get up four, five, six foot tall. Uh, Gumi and autumn olive would do good in there. Sea berry would do good. Uh, elderberry would do good. So just with those four bushes, you could, and, and let's add blackberry or raspberry. Let's not do blackberry and raspberry in the same spot. It's really considered not a good idea. But we'll do blackberry. And, and I don't know if that's really a big problem, but on, but on a large-scale production, they say no blackberry and black raspberry, no raspberry and blackberry, just not to put them together. Um, again, you can try it if you want to, but pick a cane fruit and put some of those in there. And that whole thing could be a, a berry patch. But instead of being like a briar berry patch, right, we could make it a spaced out, manage them almost like little trees. Or we could do a tree in a bush and a tree in a bush and a tree in a bush and a tree in a bush like that in alternating patterns. Or if we wanted to just do it to be clever, we could do a tree and a support species and a tree and a support species or alternating trees and bushes, just training them all about the same size. So plant all bushes that we can train to about a six-foot height, four-foot canopy. Okay. And then we go in there and we go productive, support, productive, support. Some of the supports are actually productive, like a gumi uh, or like a seaberry. Those could act as support species. There's, you could do anything you want to with it. That's the beauty of permaculture. It's like, it's like paint by numbers where you can change the size, the shapes, and the numbers at will. Uh, but I think one of the big things people get hung up on is, well, how close can trees go together? Well, you can put four in the same hole. So the, the spacing is really up to how much management you want to do how big you want the resulting tree to be, and ignore the rootstock other than trying to keep trees of about the same height with the same amount of maintenance. Try to pair those rootstocks. But don't think that, uh, since I want a little tree, I'm going to get a little bit dwarfing, you know, EMLA 26 apple rootstock. They just don't have vigor. You know, I'd rather get a, a tree on M111 apple rootstock or full-size Antonovka rootstock and, and do everything with pruning than try to make a little weak rooted tree do well it's just much easier to go the other way around so hopefully that answers your question and you start to realize it's all about what you as the designer want and how much you know maintenance you want to perform on if you want to make a little pasture for your chickens well that that's pretty easy go in there and get those pines out and clear out those brambles and and mulch it and 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 add a pasture mix to it and start managing it with your birds Another way you can prepare the area, if you do have chickens, I'm, I'm assuming you have chickens because you said pasture and some other things, uh, is you could confine those birds to that area. In fact, that's the way I would recommend dealing with the brambles and all. Instead of trying to bush hog it or whatever, take it down the best you can and put up some electronet around it. 40 by 60 is not that big. Put those birds in there for like two weeks. Let them do some work. Let them earn their keep. Uh, and then do whatever you want to it because they'll maneuver it, they'll depest it, they'll deseed it, they'll tear it up, and you probably go back in there after they're done uh, with something like a, a rogue hoe or something like that, or a mattock, and pull out a few, you know, bramble roots and stuff like that. And you'll always fight a little bit of it. Once they're there, they're almost impossible to eradicate. But at that, that point, it's a clean slate, and you can do what you want to with it. Uh, again, I hope that answers your question. Let's take another council question. This one is a, a question on economics. I left John Pugliano off last week, and uh, I've got him squared away, and he's got a question for this week. And my question for John is, the word I would use to describe the stock market and economy right now would be bipolar. Um, I don't see a massive decline like 2008 in the next few months or anything, but I feel the time for being a bit conservative might be at hand. What are your thoughts on this, John Pugliano? Bipolar is a good description of the current market conditions. 
Although the indexes are at all-time highs, you know the S&P 500 right now is really only up a little bit more than 1.5%. And year-to-date, there's also been a great deal of uncertainty in the market. In fact, the market status has been in an uptrend under pressure for about 60% of the time so far this year. To give you an example of what that means, the indexes have just been bobbing up and down all year. The S&P 500 has broken below its 50-day moving average for something like nine times so far, and we're only in early May. To give you a comparison, uh, back in 2013, we only saw the S&P drop below its 50-day moving average maybe five times. So we're already at twice that amount, and we're not even halfway through the year. That's a very volatile market, and that's despite the fact that we keep seeing the headlines that the markets are hitting all-time highs. Now, there are two primary reasons we're seeing so much volatility in the markets, and that has to do with the weakness in oil and the strength of the U.S. dollar. Just consider what's happened over the last 12 months. Lower gasoline prices and a stronger U.S. dollar are good news for the consumer, but it can have bad effects for profit margins on some of Wall Street's most favored sectors. For example, the big multinational companies, many of which make more than 50% of their not only their profits but their revenues overseas, well, their profits are taking a big hit right now because of unfavorable exchange rates because the U.S. dollar has been so strong over the last 12 months. So while the market's making all-time highs, we see many of the multinational companies are down for the year. Companies like 3M, Procter & Gamble, Caterpillar, um, Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, DuPont, even Walmart is down year-to-date. The lower oil prices are also hurting profits in the energy sector. And that doesn't include just the big oil companies, but it's everybody involved in exploration and the service companies. And then think of all the smaller regional companies that support the oil fields, companies that make equipment, companies that offer services and logistics. The energy sector's profits in first quarter of 2015 have taken hits anywhere from 30 to 40 percent. And they make up about, oh, you know, 10, 12 percent of the S&P 500. So that's a really good chunk of the economy. And think about it. Coming out of the recession, the one real bright shining spot in the economy and the geographic areas that we're seeing the most recovery were all directly related to the energy sector and specifically to the shale oil boom. So let's think in terms of bipolar. While the lower oil prices are good for the consumer, we're seeing high-paying jobs in the energy sector on decline. While at the same time, since the consumer has more money in his pocket after he fills up his gas tank, so on his way home, he heads over to a fast food restaurant and drives through the takeout window. As a result, we're seeing fast food service sector jobs increasing, but the high-paying energy sector jobs decreasing. And speaking of fast food restaurants, this really sums things up as to how bipolar this market is. Over the past 12 months, Burger King's stock has increased over 19%, while at the same time, the restaurant across the street, McDonald's, their stock has declined over 5%. You can't get more bipolar than that. But it does get more complicated because over the last month to six weeks, we've seen a real shift in what I just talked about with the strong dollar and low oil prices. So while oil prices have come down over 50% since June of 2014, in recent weeks, we've seen the price of oil go up close to 30%. And that's comparable to the strength in the U.S. dollar. Last year, we saw the U.S. dollar appreciate over 20%, but in recent weeks, we've seen it decline over 6%. This uncertainty is what's causing the tug of war in the economy right now and why we're seeing so much turbulence in the stock market. So for those of you that have benefited from the stock market's rise over the last couple years, remember the market was up over 10% last year and over 30% the year before. So is it time for you to maybe take a little bit more of a conservative position? 
Well, I wouldn't fault anybody for taking profits or for moving into more conservative positions right now. I realize that for the past two years, Wall Street has been very optimistic, and every time there's the slightest bit of decline, people will come in and buy on the dips. That's why we haven't seen a major pullback or correction since 2011. That's the last time we saw about a 20% correction. But personally, for me right now, it's too turbulent. I'm primarily in cash. Just in the last week or so, we've seen global interest rates rising significantly. We're getting a lot of mixed signals throughout the economy. We continue to have absolutely no idea what the Federal Reserve is going to do with interest rates. I can't make personal recommendations. I would just encourage people to look at their portfolio, assess the risk level they're at currently, and consider what's best for them. The financial industry is always telling you to buy and hold and to dollar cost average in, but I take a contrarian view to that. Right now, while markets are near all-time highs, it may not be a bad time to start thinking about dollar cost averaging out of the market. It's just something for you to think about. Well, Jack, I appreciate the question. If the TSP listeners would like to learn more about my market analysis or my principles on building wealth, I'd invite them to check out my podcast, which is called Wealthsteading. It's available in all the normal places, or you can get it directly at wealthsteading.com. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. So on, on the, the notes of all the awesome things that John just said, before I take the next listener call, I'd, I'd like to add one more little bit of perspective to that about taking some profits, etc., If you're doing a good financial plan, then you know how much you're investing and what your target date of retirement is and how much money you need a year after you retire and, um, and you know the return that you need to get there. You know, based on the fact that I can invest X amount of dollars, uh, Y amount of frequency, that if I get a return, let's say, of 7%, uh, which is very conservative and very low, but it, that's the kind of planning I like to do. I put enough money in to be okay with 7%. Um, and everything else is, is, is gumbo, so to speak, or icing on the cake. Uh, and, um, if, if that's the case, and, and I just made, let's say, to make it really easy, 28% of my money. For that money, I don't need to make any more money on it for four cycles. Three, really, because it's the one I just did it on. But for the next four years, in the totality of that return, I have met my goal for that money, for that, that piece of the pie that's in retirement savings. So what that means is it's no longer, to use a gambler's term, in my view, the house is money. It's now my money. I am now basing my future determinations on the fact that I have that money. When I redo my plan and say how if I, am I going to make it or not, I'm now ahead by three years, not maybe for my entire retirement, but for that earmarked block of money, say $25,000, $35,000. So what that means is I can afford conservative approach with that money. That doesn't mean that I take it and put it in the cash for three years, but if I'm looking at things and going, I don't know a good place for this money right now, there's zero harm done to my making my, my ship pull into port at the right time uh, by saying, okay, I'm going to put this in safe harbor for a little bit, and I'm going to watch for an opportunity for this money. And it's almost inconceivable that you will have to wait three years to find one. And... Yeah, you might have done better if this and if that, but you know, 
My, I'm going to say something that might offend a few people, but I offend people every day. And it's, a, it's something I learned from my woodshop teacher in high school that's always stuck with me when people start saying, well, if this and if that and what about this, is I was talking to him one time and I was talking about 308 versus 3006 and a couple extra hundred feet and why it did matter and, and what have you. And he's, you know, if this and if that, and he finally pulled me aside so that he wouldn't offend any student that would get all upset because they weren't ready to hear something like this and said, Spirico, let me tell you something. If your aunt had balls... She'd be your uncle. But you're not going to call her uncle, are you? And I think that a lot of times with investing, we need to, to have that mentality. If this and if that are unknowns, and we need to be betting on the knowns and the probable to the exclusion of the ifs and the maybes. And I think that's one of the, the most valuable things I ever learned from someone that knew what they were doing investing. And I know John takes the same approach. If I've made my goal for five years, there's no reason to risk that block of money other than the opportunity is so not definite but so probable that it makes sense and that I can mitigate the risk with the risk. With, with the risk. So what that means is I have a very clear-defined exit strategy. Uh, for that money as well. I have protection for that money. Maybe I've purchased protection for that money. There's ways to insure your money that way. I don't want to go into it more than that, but I just, I wanted to add that perspective because a lot of people are sitting on money they've made 40, 50% on. And they're worried, well, if I take it out, I might not make more. Well, if you've made 50% on money and you need 10% on it, uh, and you did it in two years, you're three years ahead. You got five years of returns there. And if you lose it, the other way to look at it, is you've lost five years of returns, or you've lost three years of returns. And that's why I, I've asked this question about conservatism. Um, the next one I have is for me, so I'll go ahead and play that question now. Hi, Jack. Uh, I have a question about raising turkeys. Um, background is going to be I have uh, three generations right now of uh, egg-laying hens. Uh, they're pretty much... Uh, Pastured, uh, free range, uh, on a third of an acre in my backyard. Um, gonna be phasing one of those out, one of those generations out, uh, as the next, uh, egg layers come on. Um, I do have some more coming in along with two turkeys. And, uh, this is gonna be my first run at turkeys. Um, one of them for Thanksgiving, one of them for Christmas, obviously. So, uh, just wanted to know about raising them with the chickens. Um, I've been told that it's possible. I've also been told not to let them out in the rain because they'll drown, that they have to have a round pen, otherwise they'll stand in the corner. And a lot of this, you know, sounds like maybe it had some truth to it, but not necessarily the whole truth. So if you could expand on that, I know you got some turkeys this year, as i just seen on the Duck Chronicles, so uh, I would appreciate your input on that. Um, again, it's going to be about on about a third of an acre, uh, and they're pastured. They're, they're being raised with um, with uh, chickens. Thanks a lot, Jack. Okay, I am a turkey novice, but I'm going to immediately bust two of those myths as what they are myths. First of all, you let them out in the in the rain, they'll drown. I don't know, maybe a baby poult that's a couple days old left out in the cold, murky, muddy rain might die of exposure, but I don't see a turkey drowning because it's out in the rain. Um, there's a myth that turkeys are stupid, and what I'll say is I don't think turkeys know a lot, but that what they know, they know well. That, that's that's what I think is more accurate. Um, and we'll get to the whole uh, getting stuck in the corner thing and how that pertains to that here in just a second. Uh, but when it comes to rain, I think that's a myth of a myth. 
So I think that the, the, the parent myth on that is that geese, if you leave them out in the rain, will look up in the air, open their mouths, and drown themselves. And I had a man tell me to my face one time, I've seen it, I've seen it. And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, admit that you're full of shit and you just believe this and you've never seen this happen in your life. He said, I have, I've, okay, I've never seen it. But my grandfather said, okay, that's it, we're done, okay? If geese looked up in the air and, and opened their mouth and drowned in the rain, there wouldn't be any geese left because most of the geese that exist on planet Earth are wild geese. And the geese that we raise are not that far away from them. That's just like turkeys. I have never in my life seen a turkey drown in the rain, but I've seen a lot of white turkeys. Uh, this is a myth. Now, the concept that a turkey's kind of dumb, I think, is true and false. As a turkey hunter, I can tell you that turkeys are some of the most visual animals in the world. Visual acuity is high. Their hearing is high. And what they know, they know well. And they are one of the most challenging animals to hunt that there is. And I know some of you live in like South Texas where they come into deer feeders and people shoot them with rifles while they're walking around out in the field. And that's one thing. But you go one-on-one -on -one with a spring gobbler and, uh, you know, or you go out and you really hunt where these birds aren't conditioned to a feeder and you'll see what I mean. Now, again, everything's perception. There are a lot of places where the turkey populations come back so high and they're living in people's backyards. Well, they're desensitized to human beings because those human beings no longer represent a threat to them. But I'm telling you, if you want to know if a turkey's smart enough, you hunt turkeys where they're hunted and where they don't live in people's pine trees in their backyard. And you will find out that that animal is not dumb, that its sense of uh, perce depth perception, its visual acuity, its hearing, and its interpretation of something ain't right is beyond belief. They are not stupid. They do behave in ways that we would consider stupid. It reminds me of a quote by Albert Einstein. If you spent your life trying to teach a fish to climb a tree, the fish would live its entire life believing itself to be stupid. So fish don't climb trees. Well, there are certain things turkeys don't really need to do in the wild, and dealing with fences is one of them. But I don't think they're any dumber than any other bird is when it comes to the fence. I've seen chickens, ducks, geese, and yes, turkeys on one side of a fence while all of their buddies have found the, the, the gate going back and forth six inches, eight inches, trying to figure out how to get out. And all, and if they went 12 inches, they'd go through the gate. And eventually you get tired of waiting on them and going and kick them in the butt and knock them out the door. I have fences that are, are squared off, and I have fences that are rounded, and I've had turkeys in both of them, and I have yet to this day to come out and see a turkey standing there in the corner not figuring out how to get out of the corner. Now, I think if you cram a hundred turkeys into a small confined fence, uh, you might end up with some turkeys crushed in the corner by the other turkeys. But I, I find the entire concept that a turkey's going to sit in a corner and not go anywhere to be almost as laughable as the fact that he's going to drown if he looks up at the rain. I, I just find both of these to be completely and totally irrational. How will they interact with chickens? My instinct tells me just fine. We don't have chickens anymore. I have turkeys that sleep with baby ducks. They, they were in a brooder together. I think that was a mistake. I think we did lose one of the, ch the young ducklings because the turkeys were so much bigger. I think they all huddled under the lamp, and the one duckling got crushed in sleep. But I don't think it was malice at all. 
when they're outside, that that's not going to happen, and they go to bed every night, and they bed down together as part of a social group, and they're with the mothers and the other little babies, and they kind of hang out together, and the turkeys go to the mama ducks, and they walk right past the little bitty ducklings. They don't hurt nothing. They almost seem like they don't even pay attention to the fact that they're there. So I can't see them being any different with chickens. I think if a chicken's aggressive to a turkey, by the time a turkey puts some size on, a turkey probably whooped the chicken's ass, but I don't think a turkey would go out of his way to be aggressive. That said, it is possible the young gal from the pet store that we got the turkey, the pet store, the feed store we got the turkeys from, uh, they do have a, the reason I said pet is they have like a section that's like livestock, but they also sell pets, including um, guinea pigs. And apparently the turkeys managed to get out of their brooder, which was a uh, steel stock tank, on a weekend when no one was there. They went into another steel stock tank that had guinea pigs in it and pulled a bunch of hair out of a bunch of guinea pigs' asses. And at the time, these poults were only about a week old, so they were little, and they terrorized these guinea pigs. Now, the reason I think they would do that, a guinea pig is a rodent. A bird knows a rodent. It's bad in a nesting area. There's instinct in there. Little thing about turkeys. The instinct is high in them. Uh, they, I don't think they're very far from where they came from. Um, it was very clear in the first week that we had at least one tom, and by the second week we had two, because the bird would be standing there just looking around, and all of a sudden it put its wings out and display. And you'd see it look like, it look at itself, like, what am I, what am I, I don't even know why it's doing it. And they're already to the point now at a few weeks of age, probably five, six weeks of age, and I can go, and the, the gobbler's heads will turn red, and sometimes they'll display, and they're starting to talk back to me and things like that. So they're fun. They're fun, but I think they're a great meat bird because even though they're fun, you get, you don't get, I don't get attached to them at all compared to chickens or a duck or something. I just like, I just look at them and go, yeah, your name's Thanksgiving, dude. Uh, so I think they're a bit, a bit easier to have as a homestead meat animal. You get a great yield off of them. Uh, they've been incredibly self-sufficient. They were in the brooder for a week. They were in a small tractor with the ducklings for about another week, and we opened them up and let them out, and they've been taking care of themselves ever since. They require a little encouragement to go in their holding area at night. That's getting better as they've gone back there more and more times. Uh, they can fly. I would say that you know they're probably another week or two away from being able to get up over the fence, and I'll probably have to clip their wings. Um, I don't think they'll be able to do that for long, as big as these things get, um, and heavy as they get, because they're a meat breed that I have. But I, I say give it a shot, and don't worry about it. Um, you know, you can always separate them for a single season if you absolutely had to. Uh, and I think the only time there is a potential for conflict would might probably be when they're back in their, their roosting area of their house. Uh, the turkeys probably could get by with a lean-to-like structure and be happy to have it not have to go in there. Uh, and then the other thing is, the one thing I've, I've learned about turkeys is they are pretty much like chickens at nighttime. Ducks do not just get all lethargic and go to sleep. Ducks are out partying at midnight sometimes. And even if they're asleep, if you go out there and you wake them up, they're off to the races. They don't just sit there and let you pick them up. Turkeys are like chickens. They're like, oh, like a teenager don't want to get a bed on Saturday morning. You can't hardly get them to move. So I've had a couple times where they've bedded down 100 yards away from the, the, the place I keep them at night, and you, you kick them, and I don't mean hurt them. I mean tap them with your foot and try to push them. Or I have a little bamboo stick I use for herding. You try to move them, and they move like one step and go back to sleep. And I had to pick up three you know, six-pound baby turkeys and carry all three of them, and then they're struggling back and put them in. And after doing that a couple times, they went. So they get lethargic. What I mean, that the good about that, is you put them away with the chickens at night when there would be the potential for conflict. Everybody's asleep. They just go to sleep, and they don't care. 
So I think it's, you know, again, I've only had three. I've only had them for five weeks. Um, but it's been easy. There's been, uh, there's been no effort to it. Now, it's probably because we've kept other poultry. We have everything we need. So if you went and got them for the first time, it might be as challenging as someone getting chickens or ducks for the first time. But if you've done it with other birds, I don't even think, I don't even think it'll phase you. And I don't think they'll harm your chickens at all. Let's, uh, let, let's take another one for an expert council member. Uh, I'm so glad I asked this question. So glad I asked this question. Because I asked it before they started coming in, and this question has come in from like a hundred of you constantly. And if it's not for Steve Harris, it's for me. And it's Tesla's new battery. Is it really a game changer? If, if so, how much of one? Tesla seems to be very excited and quite logical in their promotion of it. Now, to me personally, their claims, their specs, their marketing seems very factual. Though it seems others might be over-marketing things on their behalf without their, you know, intent. How good does it look like these new batteries are? How practical will they be for home solar systems and other home energy production methods? How big a deal is this really? Some people seem to be making it like I can throw one in my house and turn my central air on with a couple solar panels. We know that's not the case. That's not how Tesla's marketing it. But I have a feeling this is something big. This is something really, really big. This is a game changer. I know the guy that would be a pessimist if there was one and would do so on, on technical engineering merit would be Steve Harris. I have a feeling your answer is not going to be a pessimistic one. Mr. Harris, how big a deal are these new Tesla batteries? Hi, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. I want to put the Tesla battery announcement in a different light for you. Consider it being May of 1908, and this guy called Henry Ford says in October he'll start production of a horseless carriage called the Model T. We're all using buggies and horses. What's this Model T thing? Will it change stuff? Nah. Not only this, but Ford says the price of the car will be only $825. That's a factual price. And that in less than five years from now, he'll be making so many Model Ts that the price will be $440. That is also a factual price. Elon Musk, the man who helped found PayPal, the man who took his billions and started SpaceX, as well as the Tesla electric car business, is much like Henry Ford. They both started with a lot of money, and they both made their own state-of-the-art manufacturing factories. Tesla is going to open a giga battery factory in Nevada just to make lithium-ion batteries for home, business, utility, and his Tesla cars. He's betting big, just like Henry Ford did, and I know he's going to win big. What will be the effect of putting a lithium-ion battery on the market in mass manufacture for $3,000 that has a coulombic efficiency of 99.996% when a lead acid is less than 75? It's going to be tremendous. Back of the envelope calculation says the Tesla system would be about one-third the weight of lead acid batteries. 
The lead-acid battery was invented in 1859. This is mid-19th century technology we're using today in 2015. Not much has changed in it. Finally, we're dealing with a late 20th century, early 21st century battery technology. The effect of having a mass-manufactured lithium-ion battery is going to be a total game-changer. It will be like uh, before the iPhone was introduced versus seven years later when we have Androids and iPhones everywhere. That's how much of a game-changer this is going to be. I'll talk a little bit more about it in a few minutes. Now, NASA has flown these batteries on the space shuttle and on satellites. Using some electrochemistry tricks, they get 40,000 cycles out of the battery. Lead acid, 250 to 1,500 cycles. Doing one cycle a day gives that lithium battery a life of 109 years. Now, Tesla is not doing these electrochemistry tricks on their batteries. So they have a cycle life of, say, 3,000 to 5,000 cycles. That's a good 10-year life battery with daily use. But there's nothing to stop them with a few change to a few lines of code in their battery charger that they can do the same electrochemistry tricks to NASA for spaceflight. You may be able to buy from them literally a battery that will last 20, 40, 50, or more years. Now, what do I mean when I say Coulombic efficiency earlier? That means if I have a 100 watt hours I put into the battery and its Coulombic efficiency is 99.996%, I'll get 99.996 watt hours back out of the battery. Lead acid batteries are well below 75%. So your 100 watt solar panel charging a lead acid battery is like only having a 75 watt solar panel. On a Tesla battery, it'd be like having a 92 watt panel. Lithium ion batteries are like nothing you are ever used to. They do not behave like lead acid batteries at all, nor nickel metal hydride or any other thing. This is a whole hour long discussion that I'm not going to go into. Saying lithium-ion battery is like saying car. There's so many different flavors of it, it's it's mind-boggling. They require the lithium-ion batteries very strict charging control. If you overcharge a lithium-ion battery, it can burst into flame and even explode. Will this happen on Tesla battery? No, it won't. They got very good computer-controlled chargers in there. Can it happen with a cheap 181650 lithium-ion battery from Amazon and a cheap Chinese charger? Yes, it can. I have a whole section on lithium-ion batteries that you can use safely and use today in the middle of prep1234.com. The Tesla battery comes in two models, a 7-kilowatt-hour battery for 3000 bucks and a 10-kilowatt battery for 3500 That does not include the cost of the inverter, nor does it include the cost of installation, nor the cost of shipping a 200-plus pound battery by freight to your house with a lift gate. The 7-kilowatt-hour is intended to be charged and discharged every day. You charge it at night with lower electric rates, 
states. If your state has this, not all do. And then you use the energy from the battery during the peak demand hours when electricity costs the most. This is called peak shaving. Don't forget that word. There is even talk of charging the battery up at night and then selling the electricity back to the utility during the day if you are not using it. Now, before you get all excited about buying electricity at night and selling it during the day, going, yippee, I'm going to make a fortune. It's a 7-kilowatt battery. It's not a lightsaber. So if you buy electricity for $0.05 cents per kilowatt hour at night and sell it for $0.15 cents during the daytime, that's a profit of $0.10 cents per kilowatt hour, and you have a 7-kilowatt hour battery. So you just made $0.70 cents overnight on a system that cost at least $3,000, not including the installation and inverter. That's 21 bucks a month. 3,000 divided by 21. That's a 12 year return on investment. Now with California where they have 28 cents per kilowatt hour prices during peak demand, your return on investment might be five years if you're doing peak shaving. The 10 kilowatt battery is more of a weekly use battery, more of a home backup battery. If the power fails, the 10 kilowatt will keep most of your house running. Both of the batteries can only output 2 kilowatts, so it won't run your central AC system. Sorry, but it will keep your refrigerator and freezer and TV powered. So it's really easy for a house to draw 1 kilowatt with all the stuff in it going. So that means your $3,500 10-kilowatt-hour battery will last you for only about 10 hours in a blackout. So it's not really a prepper battery. You're still better off with a Stephen Harris battery bank if you want prepper reasons for doing so and weeks of power. How is this a game changer? Tesla is making an electrical fishnet. It captures everything. They're making something that is standard and state-of-the-art. Now you have one device to do peak shaving, one device to do home battery backup, one place to input your solar or your wind power into. They're making a box that goes between your electrical panel and the power company. Will these current versions be huge game changers? No, the current versions won't. What will be the huge game changer is when version 2 or version 3 of this battery comes out in five years at half the price of the current battery. Now, that will be a game changer. We can talk about return on investment now in one to five years with peak shaving alone. Remember, the Model T went from 825 to $440 in five years. That's when it became a game changer and forced out the horse and the buggy. The average person could afford it. The same will be true with the battery. I could talk for hours on this subject, but I only have minutes here. But what I can tell you is that in the next five years, the world's use of lithium is going to be much higher. A lot of lithium is going to be purchased and used. Now, I am not a financial advisor. I cannot give you financial advice. But I am going to tell you the stock symbols of some of the largest lithium producers on the planet. You can talk with your financial advisor about these. 
SQM, Sierra Quebec Mary, is the largest producer of lithium in the world. FMC, Fox Mary Charlie, is the world's second largest producer. ROC, Roger Oscar Charlie, is the third largest producer. There is also a lithium ETF. Its symbol is LIT, as in Lima Indigo Tango. All of these companies sell a lot more than just lithium. It's only part of your business. So do your research carefully and talk with professionals on how you might go long on lithium. And to sum up what I said earlier, this battery being announced and coming out is like the world before smartphones. And in five, six, seven years, it will be like 2015 with, with smartphones everywhere and a part of our daily life and one billion people on the planet have them. It's going to be huge. The world has changed. You just don't realize it yet. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. You can get everything I've done with Jack at Stephen1234.com. Thanks for the good question. I'm happy to bring this information to you. Bye. In other words... It's a big stinking deal. Um, I would say that Steve Harris in the world of the battery and lithium ion not that long ago was a pretty big bear, if you would call it from a stock market investing. And he just became really bullish. Um, and I think there's a reason. I think it took something of this magnitude to show what, what could be done at scale. And the pessimism wasn't that it couldn't be done, but that it wouldn't be done. That it would take someone like Elon Musk to say, we're going to effing do this. And I think the car was not designed so that, or I don't think the batteries were originally designed for the car. I think the car was designed so that the batteries could become what they are. I think, I think Tesla may not be in every driveway in America, or even in most driveways in America, but I think not that long from now, a decade or so, it may be in almost every home in America in one way or another. I, I think that's the level of the game changer here. I do have one more question for me, but I also have one for Nick Ferguson, so I'm going to go ahead and play that one first. Um, Nick, I have some apple trees on that are one-year, uh, your first-year graphs. They're one-year bench graphs, or first-year bench graphs. So single bud, trained to a whip for the first year. I have them in pots. I have them in my garage. And uh, most of them took. Most of them did well. Nice size whip on them. Two or three started to get a little chewed looking and can't find anything on them. Eventually, I did find another plant, a big gray looking, grayish brown looking caterpillar that might have been the culprit. I don't know. He's gone. I sliced him in half. But the, the, what would happen, you see a couple little bites, and then it looked like someone kind of stripped the leaves off. It's like a green stem. Everything eaten, gone. Like, I don't think the ones that it got, whatever it is, got it, it are going to recover. Like, they're lost, because there was only one bud. So it's done now. Um, I don't want to lose all of these trees. I have about 30 trees out there. Um, what do you think does that, and what can I do to try to protect my other trees? And after Nick answers that, I'll come back with the last question of the day. Hey, Jack. Um, that's great hearing that your apples are doing well. Sorry, a couple of those failed. Um, keep those and let them uh, sucker out wherever they will because next year you should be able to graft onto that rootstock again. So just because you had a couple of them fail doesn't mean you 
don't still have a good resource in that rootstock. Um, as for the ones that got eaten, um, there, there could be a couple things. I don't know exactly what your, um, how you have your doors and everything. If you have doors open at night and rabbits could get in there, I'm, I'm guessing rabbits could have eaten them. I don't know exactly what the damage looks like, so it's hard to tell. Um, and I don't know what you mean by green stems, but I'm just going to guess that, um, what you mean is they, um, some of the outer bark was eaten off or it just got eaten down to a nub. So if, if wood was eaten, then my guess is that it's some kind of herbivore like, um, rats or, um, or squirrels maybe, but most likely, um, rabbits or rats. And I think you do have some pack rats, uh, cause I think I saw Charlie killed one. Um, I'd look at it and see if the, if the, the stick looks like rodents not on it. If it doesn't, then my guess would be insect damage. So if it's insects, then there's not a whole lot you can do, um, unless the insects are hiding out in the soil and the pots, which is, um, somewhat reasonable to expect that. So what I do is I take them outside and I would mix up a drench of either BT or neem oil and I would spray the tops and I drench the pots. And if there are caterpillars in there that are coming up at night and chewing on your trees, then, um, that should take care of them. What I would do is sequester the two that got chewed on and I'd monitor the rest of them to make sure that you're not getting some, some, um, light damage that you're not, um, identifying until there's big damage. So there could be a little bit of damage. I check that. Um, but that's what I do. I, I'd suspect rabbits or rats. Um, and then I'd, I'd be looking at insects. So I hope that helps. Um, this has been Nick Ferguson from the Expert Council. Let me know if you have any more questions, TSB audience, and thanks, Jack, for the question. Hi, Jack. This is Matt in Birmingham uh, with a question about ants in the garden bed. I've got a second year Jack Spearco style Hugel on contour uh, garden bed. I've got a couple of them here. And I've got a pretty big ant mound here. And um, anyway, I was wondering how to deal with that without chemicals and kind of what your approach is and thoughts about things like that. Uh, otherwise, things are growing pretty well. But um, I've got a big ant mound and a little one a little farther down. And then another place where I've got another raised bed. Um, a few feet over, I've got another one growing in some tomatoes and uh, the other one's some broccoli plants and stuff like that. But uh, I'd be interested on your take on that, and uh, enjoy the show. Thanks. Well, in general, I think there's two kinds of ants. There are ants that don't really bother much and don't cause much trouble unless they're in the wrong place, like uh, crazy raspberry ants are an ant that really won't bite you and really won't cause any trouble, but they can get a, like an electrical box and short everything out. So that's an example of an ant that really isn't a problem unless he's in the wrong place. In Panama, we had leafcutter ants. You could see little trails through the lawns 
one of the most peaceful ants I've ever seen in my life. They carry a leaf. You could stick your hand right in their trail. And they got a little confused until one of them went over your hand, and then they left a scent trail, and they just marched back and forth over your hand. Nobody bites anybody unless you go digging around in their nest. Unless they're defoliating one of your trees. Again, this is an ant that we can peacefully coexist with. Based on the fact that you're calling me, I think this is the other kind of ant, the fire ant. There's no peaceful coexistence with fire ants. They need to die. They need to die a horrible, miserable, suffering death. That is the only thing that they deserve. And I have no qualms in eradicating, destroying, killing them in massive numbers and slaughtering their evil little selves because they're not even supposed to be here. These things came in from South America where there are predators that live and keep them in some level of population check. Uh, the Predator is a little wasp-like creature that it sounds like a science fiction horror movie when you hear what this thing does. It's so small that it can sting a fire ant in the thorax. So not the big butt, not the big head, the little bitty piece in the middle, in the, in the chest, like being stung in, in the lungs. And it stings an egg into the fire ant. And a little larva is in that egg, and it hatches. And it starts gestating inside the fire ant. And it eventually crawls through the throat into the head and eats the brain of the fire ant, who freaks out and dies a miserable, horrible death. Uh, and then the ants carry the dead body out and make a pile. And the little creature finishes its gestation period right outside of the nest and repeats the cycle and keeps the population in check. The University of Austin, or uh, yeah, University of Texas at Austin, has done research on this this little critter, and decided two things: one, the risk of bringing yet another invasive species into the United States is probably too high to make it worth trying. God knows what else it might do. That goes in the wind column, probably. And two, it wouldn't matter anyway because it probably wouldn't work here. They probably won't survive in most of the most of the area because the total environment is just not right for them. They, they can kill fire ants all they want. They still have wrong temperature swings and di different things about the the fire ants' native habitat that it can adapt to, but the predator cannot. So that's not available to us. So we need another method of horrific death for these evil creatures. And some of you might think that I'm embellishing how evil they are and how horrible they are, and everything in life has a purpose and does something good. They do aerate soil. That's about the only uh, thing they can do, and it's not enough to keep them around. Um, if you live in a place where you have normal ants, the kind of ants that you can peacefully coexist with, then you may not understand the need to destroy these things. If you live in the south or southeastern United States and you've ever uh, been out walking around a pair of flip-flops and, and been in high grass and stood in a mound of them and uh, <laughs> experienced what can only be called fire, uh, because that's what it's like when they attack you, and then had little lumps all over your feet before you learned to rub comfrey and plantain on them as soon as it happened uh, for days and days afterward, then you would understand why they have to die. If you had ever had one, you know, get into your shirt without realizing it and, and, and bite you in your armpit uh, or other nether regions, then you might want them dead. And that's why the caller wants them dead. They need to die a horrific, merciless death. But we need to do it in a way that won't harm the beneficial other life forms on our property, nor harm us or our pets, and we need to do it in a way that won't screw up our soil biology. And wouldn't it be a way, 
if there was a way to kill them and give them a horrible, horrible, horrible death and actually make everything better at the same time. And there is. There is a product that I consider a miracle product that is available, as far as I know, exclusively as a, a premixed product from Gardenville. G-A-R-D-E-N hyphen V-I-L-L-E dot com. And I will put a link in the show notes today. You can get a gallon of it for about 20 bucks, and it mixes with water, a couple ounces to the gallon, and you pour it in your watering can, and you go where the evil creatures have built their nest, and you drench their mound. And one of the ingredients in it is orange oil. And when orange oil impacts the exoskeleton of a fire ant, it literally melts the exoskeleton of the fire ant and gives them the horrible, merciless, painful death that they deserve. And soon the fire ant mound will be gone. Or the population will be knocked back, you'll see some activity, and you give them another horrible bath in the um, the uh, antifuego, and they go away and they die. If you have a lot of them on your property like we do, it's almost a never-ending thing. Dorothy goes out and murders fire ants a couple times a month, and just we're not going to get rid of them all. I'd love to, but we just keep the populations in check. And when we see a mound uh, that is in a place where sooner or later somebody's going to get stung, or somebody gets stung, we earmark a mound for massive, high-level, malicious ant murder. If you can't tell, I don't like these things. I do like Antifuego. Now, the other ingredients in Antifuego are basically soil amendments. So I'll give you the, the recipe, basically, so you can make your own. You would mix, to make about a gallon, about a, a quarter cup of orange oil, Uh, about a quarter cup of molasses uh, to about a gallon of compost tea. And there's other recipes for it, but that one will work really well for you. And what happens is the orange oil melts the ants. The molasses feeds the soil organisms, which then break down the body of the ants. And the compost tea or humic acid will also encourage the soil biological activity, and all of the little soil critters will eat the ants, and it will actually turn the ant mound into a really fertile place that you can plant stuff, and it won't hurt your plants, and it won't hurt your dog, and it won't hurt you, and it, unless you pour it directly on top of them, it's not going to hurt things like your spiders and your assassin bugs and your wheel bugs and your praying mantises and, and all that other stuff. It's just going to kill the animals that you dump it on, in this case, the evil, horrible fire ant. And you will have the satisfaction of knowing that not only have you improved your soil and killed the fire ants, but you've done so in almost a science fiction level horrific model that's not that far away from the way that nature intended them to die, by having their brain eaten from the inside by a little larva. Now, those of you that think I was a little bit overly dramatic, a little bit hostile toward the fire ant, I would like you to realize something. Evolution designed a method of death for these creatures that's actually far worse than the one that Antifuego provides. Being melted sucks. Having a creature live inside your body, crawl into your skull, eat your brain until it's gone, that's even worse. So even nature thinks these things deserve a horrible, horrific death. A little bit of true satirical humor here at the end of the show, 
to hopefully give you a lot to think about over the weekend. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Again, I'm really enjoying this new format. Remember to send a question in for the Expert Council. Put TSP Expert Question in the subject line, and then give me your question, who it's for, and I'll see if I can get it on a future show. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Once again, we are batting down the hatches for severe storms here in Texas. We've had several days of them. They're not going away anytime soon. Um, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, you guys all up in that way are under the gun. Further to the southeast, you guys are looking at uh, rougher weather going into Sunday, Monday, Tuesday next week as this, this system finally gets out of our hair and into yours. Uh, this is the time of the year for severe weather. Your short-term preps go along with your long-term preps. Pay attention to the weather station. Learn to read weather, weather radar for yourself. Uh, be prepared and pay attention. That is the biggest thing that will keep you alive during some of these storms between flooding, tornadoes, and, and straight-line winds. Uh, we had a listener last night that was here at her house because he's doing some granite work for us. He left the house and went home and watched a tornado go by his house in Sanger, Texas. Literally watched it out the window go past his his area. Uh, fortunately, the, that tornado, a very long-lived, very large wedge-shaped tornado, uh, spent almost all of its time in empty fields. Uh, just luck of the draw there and bad luck for the grasshoppers and good luck for the people, so that's a good thing. Hopefully it took out some fire ants while it was at it, but um, there were multiple tornado vortices uh, uh, spun up out of that storm. Uh, there were, at one time, we had four tornadoes on the ground, uh, all within two counties, all in the same area. Uh, people up near Sanger that dealt with the one tornado then dealt with another tornado coming in right behind it. Uh, all of that was significantly north of us. You had a storm behind it uh, that was coming in as a squall line, all of a sudden bowed out to look like an arrow, and that is always an indication of very, very strong straight-line winds. Uh, those can spin up tornadoes, but let's face it, 70-mile-an-hour winds or 70-mile-an-hour winds, whether they go in a circle or a straight line, doesn't really matter. Uh, that went through a, a small town in, in, in northern Texas where it blew up transformers and just blew transformers to the point where they, they exploded off of the, the, the power poles uh, and dropped power lines. That also went just north of us, and we got hit with some pretty strong thunderstorms, but nothing to ride home about. We're going to be under the gun tonight. Uh, Saturday, it's even a higher risk. There are places where the Torcon, which is the percentage of likelihood of a tornado within 50 miles over this weekend, are sixes and sevens. If you want to know more about Torcon, I think it's a really good way to get an idea of what the risk in your area is. Just type Torcon into Google, because Weather Channel makes it almost impossible to find when you're on their main site. If you put it in Google, you'll find it, T-O-R-C-O-N. Dr. Greb Forbes has put that together. It's a real good way to assess the risk in your area. Pay attention. Have your blackout kits ready to go, even if you don't get major damage. Uh, there are going to be plenty of people with the power out for short to long periods of time. And that makes me think of a question that I have for Stephen Harris for next week. For when the power goes out, but not for very long. It's more of a convenience thing. We'll see what answer he has to that next week. We'll see what other answers that I have for you. We'll see whatever we can come up with you for shows next week. I wish you the best weekend you can have. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. 
Revolution is you. 